What does Pharrell Williams, Zac Efron, and Katy Perry have in common? All three have been accused of cultural appropriation. Pharrell for wearing Native American headwear, Zach for wearing dreadlocks, and Katie for performing as a geisha. But they are not alone. There is a long list of celebrities that have been slammed for borrowing from other cultures without giving attribution or paying respect to the originators. Are these acts of cultural appropriation or are they acts of appreciation? Here for the debate, our professor of cultural communications at American University, Dr. Omikongo Dabinga, and New York Times bestselling author Frederick Joseph. One of the nation's leading legal experts on cultural appropriation joins the discussion. And later in the show, I go one-on-one -on -one with a man who has a lot to say about black women's hair and culture. All coming up next. Live from Los Angeles, this is The Special Report. It's not uncommon for white suburban youth to perform rap music, for New York fashion designers to look to Europe for inspiration, or for U.S. sports teams to leverage images of Native Americans for commercial purposes. The debate over cultural appropriation or appreciation has been going on for years, but it has taken on a new sense of urgency and importance amid global protests over racial justice issues. Why are the lines between right and wrong blurred when it comes to distinguishing between appropriation and appreciation? Here for the debate are Dr. Omikongo Dabinga, Professor of Cultural Communications at American University and New York Times bestselling author of the new book, The Black Friend on Being a Better White Person, Frederick Joseph. Good morning and welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Good morning. So, you were both here not too long ago, and I promised I would get you back on together because it seems like you were having some kind of bro love fest when you uh, saw each other <laughs> on camera. So true to our word, we now have you both back. I know, Frederick, you talk a lot about cultural appropriation in your new book, this hot, you know, bestseller uh, book. But I want to start off with you, Dr. DePinga. Give us the textbook definition of cultural appropriation. Well, I'm going to read from the definition given by Professor Michelle Hefner Hayes. And she says, taking the external trappings of cultural traditions and using them as decorations on your own history without developing mutually supporting relationships in the community that you're taking from. That is the textbook definition that I use to talk about cultural appropriation. Okay, Frederick, give us the fifth grade definition. Just just break it down for us like if we're just on the street talking to our homies. Just make it real plain for us. Uh, you know, for, for me, that fifth grade definition is pretty simple. If it's not yours and you don't have rights to use it, don't leverage it, don't take advantage of it, especially not with that, without consent, right? It's, it's a very simple um, thing. And then even if you have consent, you still need buy-in from an entire community that adheres and owns said culture. Help us understand, Dr. Dabinga, the whole power dynamics. Because when we talk about cultural appropriations, some people get really confused. Like, well, can Black people, you know, be accused of cultural appropriation? We've seen it used with respect to Beyonce and some other African-Americans. But there's a whole lot of classism and racism wrapped up into this term. Help us understand what that looks like. 
Most definitely. And I talk about this a lot with the students in my class called a cultural appropriation or appreciation. And the fact of the matter is that any group can, can appropriate another group. But when we talk about the power dynamics, we normally see that groups that tend to have more power will appropriate the culture of people who don't have more of a, of a powerful voice. And so typically we can have conversations as it relates to what happens with our Native American brothers and sisters, for example. So in instances like a Beyonce or a Wu-Tang, that comes back to Professor Hayes' definition, talking about that mutually supporting relationship. What relationship is Beyonce developing with, say, the Indian community in India for the outfit that she wore in him for the weekend, right, for example? Uh, what relationship does, does Wu-Tang develop with, with the Asian American community for what, what they were doing in terms of the appropriation in their, in, their, in their clothing during the 90s? So I believe that any group can do it. It's about showing that appreciation by a, the developing a mutually supportive relationship. If you don't do that, then you're committing, basically, it was like the academic form of plagiarizing, taking credit for someone else's work without proper attribution. Yeah, Frederick, we, we need to look no further than music. Obviously, when we think back about, you know, musicians in the 1940s and 1950s who were appropriating black music, rock and roll, for example, uh, oftentimes get associated with white musicians rather than pioneers like Little Richard. Now, a lot of artists will say, we're not stealing, you know, we're just, uh, we're being inspired by that music. Help us understand what's the difference, uh, particularly when you think about music, you think about rock and roll. Uh, were those, you know, white artists just inspired by Little Richard? Like Elvis Presley, for example. Well, I, I think um, Elvis is a particular example because, you know, as opposed to just inspiration, he directly stole and, and specifically um, from a black woman, right? So you have, um, as uh, Dr. Dabinga has said, um, you, you're lacking um, a mutual benefit, a, a mutual um, understanding even of, of what's going to um, happen based on you being quote unquote inspired, right? So, you, you know, I can give one, one example using Justin Timberlake. Um, and his performance at the Super Bowl with Janet Jackson. Now, Justin Timberlake is someone who started out in a space um, of boy bands and things of that nature, which also is influenced um, by black culture when you have the Jackson Five, the Temptations and, and groups like that, though they're not recognized as such. The through line is not seen from that black music to what ultimately became um, the most popular mainstream music. Now, going back to the Super Bowl, what happened was, you know, Justin Timberlake performed with Janet Jackson. They performed um, what essentially is popular R&B. And there was an incident with her and, and her dress. I'm not going to go into that necessarily. But you saw how even in that instance, she was chastised, blackballed, and lambasted um, as a Black woman who ultimately, um, you know, was reduced to uh, having to reinvent herself in many ways. Whereas Justin Timberlake not only did not have to do that for being involved in the incident, um, but he also didn't stand up for her, right? And this is what we see in um, not just uh, appropriation, um, but direct racism that exists within the appropriative actions of people, right? So, you know, again, it's not just a matter of not having a mutual benefit. There are benefits that just are never had by the people who quote unquote are inspiring um, these artists. Yeah, th that example you gave is a great example uh, of something else we've been talking a lot on the show about, which is massage noir. We actually had Dr. Nora Bailey, uh, the professor that coined that term in 2008 on the show this week, 
Uh, and she talks about the unique form of sexism and racism that black women face. And that's a great example because that that incident at the Super Bowl, uh, you know, Janet Jackson was was just attacked viciously uh, in the press, in the media, you know, did great damage to her career. And Justin Timberlake, as you said, went on to, to you know, really benefit and, and have a, a stellar career. Uh, I want to talk, though, about stereotyping. Because one thing that happens with cultural appropriation too is stereotyping. So when you know black kids do it, it's negative. You know, it has these negative connotations. But if it gets adopted by you know mainstream and then particularly white kids, suburban kids, then all of a sudden it's hip and it's cool. Help us understand that dynamic, Dr. Dominga. Well, I'll give you a classic example. What we see on the internet and Instagram and what we call black fishing, right? Spelled with a, with a PH, right? Where you see that people who are not black will get tans, they'll get lip jobs, they'll get nose jobs and the like, and they will come on using what we call AVE, African-American vernacular, uh, vernacular English, and basically create a caricature of, of what they, of a stereotype of black people, and they will make tons of money off of it. And then they'll go right back and then you'll see them in other videos and they're like at a wedding or something just talking quote unquote normally and they're getting youtube advertisements instagram advertisements and then another example there's a dance that one of you all might know the name of i can't remember but a, a white girl saw a, a black kid doing it at like an after school program and she started doing it it got popular she even performed it at the super bowl it got so popular and, and the black child got no credit until like recently Right. And so we see those examples happening all of the time on Instagram, on YouTube. And that's how they, they play off these stereotypes and make a boatload of money doing it while we get nothing. All right, Frederick, you know the name of that dance. I don't. I'm, I'm asking my producer that's 23. Get us the name of that dance and get us that video. <laughs> I want to say the renegade, but I could be wrong. The dance. All right, Lana and Justin, help us out. Throw me some notes on that dance. I want to make sure we get it right. <laughs> it's, the, it's the renegade. It's the renegade dance. It, 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 it's a, and I and I think it's an important moment that Dr. Dabinga brings up because it's a great example again of how these stereotypes of um, black um, bodies, for example, these stereotypes of black culture are are used against us and used to reinforce racism, used to reinforce white supremacy. But oftentimes when they are leveraged, um, people who then take those things are celebrated. You find this also um, with the stereotypes of black women's bodies and the Kardashians, uh, for one example, right? You know, having uh, more voluptuous builds, having fuller lips and things of that nature, um, you know, uh, darker complexions. When black women are just black women in that way, um, it is frowned upon. But when any anyone else does it, as Dr. Dabinga said, there's a boatload of money usually um, that comes along next. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up, the whole body uh, image. And now we're going through this body positivity moment. But yes, for years, black women were told that our butts and our hips and our boobs were too big. And that we needed to, you know, lose massive amounts of weight, uh, you know, starve ourselves to be, you know, this thin, you know, size zero. And then all of a sudden, big butts, big hips were like in. People were getting injections all over the place, surgeries all over the place. Uh, and still in African-American communities, depending on some of its classism, some of its, you know, socioeconomic. So depending on the neighborhood that you're in, you're, you're still, you know, body shamed. Uh, you know, for certain bodies. It, I just want to get your opinion on this. It's, speaking of this, I've had this debate with a couple of people. The Grammys. So Megan Thee Stallion, Cardi B, the WAP performance, right? 
they're on the ground or on the floor, you know, got a little sexual. Do you think that if that had been two white women with thinner body types, not, you know, Megan and, and you know, with the hips and the butt, thanks Rashad for the photo, uh, that it would have, you know, the, there might have been a different response to it. I believe that is true. I believe that there's there's a certain visceral reaction that people get to see black people celebrating their 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 blackness. And by blackness, I mean in this particular case, their bodies. And particularly something that has been denied us so often through slavery and other experiences. I mean, coming out of slavery, there were laws that, you know, saying black women had to cover up because they might have been too tempting towards the white men. So I think that when black women in particular are exercising the liberation, and I know people can critique the dances and the like, but just the celebration of their own independence by controlling their bodies, the reaction is always different than when someone else might do it from a different community. Yeah, I, I was having this debate even with my own daughters who said, oh, mom, that was really sexual. And I was like, hey, I was I was there for it. I, I was feeling good. <laughs> I was, I've been on this like, you know, crusade for the last week, like celebrating because I know for how long black women who had, you know, thicker bodies were shamed about it. And, you know, we, we were hiding them. We were, you know, under big tents to hide our bodies. So to me, to see African-American women who, you know, in Megan's case in particular, I don't think she's, you know, had a lot of surgery. Hopefully, I don't think so. But, you know, just celebrating her size and not being ashamed and, and being just authentically her and, and not feeling any inhibition about being a woman that had, you know, round butt, thick thighs and saying, hey, I can be on national TV with my round butt and thick thighs and not feel bad about that. That, that was a powerful statement for me. I want to move on though to Bruno Mars, uh, Frederick. Lots of debate about Bruno. Bruno is a person of color but you've had African-Americans go hard on Bruno and accusing him of cultural appropriation with respect to his music, saying he has stolen you know, his style, his sound from black artists. What do you think about the Bruno Mars debate? Well, I, I think first things first is that, you know, blackness is not a monolith. You know, one of the things that I, I did with this conversation is, is took a look online, right? And, and everyone has a different opinion. My personal opinion is I do think that some of his work is appropriative, though I am also a fan of him. I think the very nature of him having the ability to access celebrity, access capital, um, because he's not black, is a demonstration of the appropriate, appropriative nature of it. Right. He is um, his last album, for example, is a New Jack Swing um, album, which, um, you know, is credited to um, the era of um, uh, Bobby Brown and, and people of that nature. But they were never um, and they aren't as big as he is. Right. And that did not usher in a new uh, era of New Jack Swing and, and interest in those black artists, which, again, speaks to how appropriation between people of color is a real thing, even if not intended. Now, I think he's a phenomenal artist, but the facts are the facts. Because he is not black, he has access and privileges um, that black people did not get um, or, or receive um, for doing the same types of, of art and having invented it as well. But do you think, Dr. DeBinga, this argument goes too far and we get on a slippery slope? And someone like Bruno Mars, who is of color, who says, look, I love that music. I grew up on it. And I do give credit to R&B artists. I do give credit to, you know, rock and roll. I do give credit to jazz artists. And I still get slammed for it. Do you think, we're, you know, the argument is going too far? And we have to recognize that, you know, no one owns the rights. Uh, you know, there, obviously there, there can be copyrights and legal issues involved. But 
people are going to be inspired by those artists that they grow up listening to. Right. I think that's a great point. And I think the Bruno Mars case is interesting, you know, because he, he is a brown person and there are more black and brown people across the world. And so we really can get into a conversation about international blackness as it relates to the diaspora. But but more to your point, when you look at somebody like Bruno Mars, the question for someone like him is what financial relationships are you working with from these groups that you say to respect? It's not just enough to say that I love the Bobby Brown, I love these other groups. What are you doing to, to help that community? And I think that that's a problem that groups like BTS got involved in in the K-pop field. And what BTS, members of BTS, some of them started doing was actually working with some of the Black artists that they inspired, put them in some of their songs, and those Black artists started making money off of it. And so I think that when we say we might be going too far, Black folks are just tired of seeing their culture get disrespected and pulled and taken. And now that we have larger microphones through social media and the like, we are letting the world know that this, whether you're Justin Bieber, Justin Timberlake, whoever, this is our culture and you're going to respect us as the creators of it. Yeah, let's talk about Miley Cyrus. I, I want to show this, this photo of her when she dropped that twerk move <laughs> with uh, Robin Thicke. Uh, what do you think of that, Frederick? You know, she got slammed hard for that. <laughs> Obviously, she had been working on that move for a long time. You know, she's feeling it. She's in it, right? <laughs> well, you know, I personally, um, in terms of the twerking itself, um, I don't necessarily have an issue with it. But also, I think that, again, I'm not a black woman, nor am I a woman, um, you know, uh, who's Afro-Latina, so on and so forth, who have been um, criticized and, and downtrodden because of doing similar acts. Right. And I think this goes back to what Dr. Dabinga says. It's, it's, there, there's nuance, right? There's, there's the aspect of you doing something that other people cannot. And then also, what benefit does the originating community have for you doing this, right? Like, is that in some way, shape, or form supporting other, supporting Black women who also twerk, let's say, um, and getting them more praise for doing so? And if that's not the case, then this is a major issue. Yeah, now, I got I got if I could just add to that because this is one of the reasons I started teaching this class at America was that video. Um because everyone was talking about twerking. And I'm like, what is it? So I went and watched the video, and then the video ended. I'm like, when is she gonna twerk? What is this thing? So and then I realized what she was doing, we call that grinding in the hood at the club. So I was just like, you just took it, put a new name on it, and then called it yours. And then when people ask her about it, she her basic response was, I'm just doing my thing. No, healing someone else's thing. And that's a problem. Oh, okay. So you used that video inspired you to start teaching this class. Is that what oh, you're saying? Yes. Most wow. definitely. <laughs> and yeah, we that, watch that it every video caught a lot of fire. So uh, it had a lot of tentacles. I want to bring it to the conversation now. Susan Scafidi, she's a law professor at Fordham University. She's the author of Who Owns Culture? Uh, she's talked a lot about uh, cultural appropriation in the context of fashion. Uh, and she runs the, she's a director, actually, of the Fashion Law Institute. Good morning, Susan, and thank you for joining the conversation. Grave, it's so lovely to be here with you and with all of you. Thank you so much for the invitation. So we've been talking about who owns the culture, Susan, and you've written a whole book about it. You teach about it in law school. So particularly when we talk about this music, that gets a little complicated, right? Help us understand. We, we know there are copyright lawsuits and lots of artists have been sued you know, for copying the music of other artists. But, you know, where, where do you draw the line? Areva, you're so right. And as an attorney, you know, right, that copyright is very protective 
of individuals or corporations, defined entities. But copyright does a terrible job, intellectual property in general does a terrible job of protecting groups or styles. Um, and so an individual artist who has work stolen exactly or plagiarized, as we'd say in, in academic terms, might have a copyright suit, but an entire culture rarely does. Um, and so that's part of what made me interested in this area of cultural appropriation, right? Why do we only protect the individual genius? Why don't we protect cultures who evolve these styles over time and bring these great gifts together? Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. And when we think about cultures, the Native American culture uh, had been the subject of lots of cultural appropriation from their fashion to their art to rituals that have been used in the mainstream. I, I wanted to you know, show some of these examples and I can't think of anything that, that's more demeaning. I mean, we, we all grew up watching, you know, like cowboys and Indians. And, you know, the Native American culture has been demonized in this country for so long. Dr. Dabinga, why do you think Native Americans in particular are, are the subject of, of cultural appropriation in such intense ways? Well, in part because they're the group that we see the least and they don't they for a long period of time haven't had as loud a microphone as, as other people. We know that many within the Native American community have been fighting for decades to change the name of the Washington football team. But with a lot of the unrest last year where more other voices, black voices, white voices got added to it, that change finally came. And so when you don't really see a community, it's very easy for you to otherize them. How many people can say they have three, four or five Native Americans in class with them? So they they have always been on some level foreign to us, to us, even though they are the original people within this country. And that is why it's so easy to steal from them and steal from their culture. Yeah, the Asian culture also has been the subject of a lot of uh, appropriation. Uh, Frederick Katy Perry got slammed for appropriating Japanese culture by depicting herself in a geisha uh, in uh, a video music at the Video Music Awards. These. So that, I, I guess the celebrities really uh, dumbfound me because they have tons of people around them that get paid to keep them out of hot water. Why does this keep happening with celebrities like Katy Perry, Frederick? What do, what do you think is going on there? Well, I, I think part of it is an entitlement um, to disrespect, right? We, we dehumanize certain groups so often that it becomes the norm, right? In which we don't think that we have to do some of those checking and balancing um, before taking, committing certain actions. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, the Native American community before, you know, I'm in New York City here. When you look around New York, everything is named after um, Native Americans, right? You go up to Westchester County and further you go up, everything is named and stolen re realistically, but we're not taught to recognize, respect, or realize um, all these things. And therefore, um, as we're going along and dehumanizing, we have a culture of not just appropriating, but stealing constantly. And I think that um, that's a through line directly to the actions of Katy Perry and other celebrities like her. Yes, yeah, there's one tiny little area of the law that does directly address cultural appropriation, and it does have to do with Native Americans, um, but it only goes to their names or to the, the, word, the use of the word Indian or Native American. And even that law, the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, goes back to 1930 and was meant to protect white collectors. Um, so it is really so hard uh, to do anything about it. The Navajo Nation actually successfully tried when Urban Outfitters created a line of products and called them Navajo. And it was just a step too far because the, the uh, Urban Outfitters um, 
said, well, you guys don't own the name. That's just generic for a style. So we here we have a people who've had their lives taken, their lands taken, their children taken away and assimilated in forced schools. And then Urban Outfitters wants to take their name as well. Now that case settled um, and I'm glad it did. And it actually settled with a most unusual agreement between the, the Navajo Nation and Urban Outfitters to actually do some production together and throw some money back to the reservation. Thank you very much. Uh, but it is really a great example of exactly what Fred was just saying. And, and what about Dr. Dominga Katie? To her defense, she said, look, I was paying homage, you know, to the Asian culture. And we hear that all the time when celebrities do get slammed, you know, for their actions. Uh, they, they, the, the default is always, you know, that was my way of, you know, elevating and respecting. Is that enough? You know, I know Frederick says, no, it's not enough just to say, you know, you respect something or you're inspired by something. But is it realistic to expect every time somebody wants to dress, you know, in, in the culture, in another person's culture that or another uh, culture that they have to then go out and do something active, like donate money or, you know, collaborate on a project? Is that realistic? I think it, it needs to be realistic. And I definitely don't think that that it's enough if you're going to show a, 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 an outfit to the world, a uniform to the world or a dance to the world. And people are just gonna, who don't know are just gonna think it's your creative genius that made that. And are probably most likely not gonna look at the interview on the side that you did where you said, this is me honoring that particular culture. Then you need to do more to uplift that culture. Look, challenge the curriculum in, in a school that might be looking at this culture in a particular way. Yes, there could be financial things. Are there laws that you know you can help this group get, get access to or, or rights that they can get access to? I believe that we all need to be called on to do more. I believe that we all have a microphone now for a reason. And the days of profiting off of someone else's culture, especially when they're still alive and breathing while they're, they're struggling, and we can talk about it from everything from things like African art that we buy in airports to so many other different things, we need to show that proper respect because those communities are still struggling while others are profiting. Susan, let me go Socratic method on you for a minute. Absolutely. What about the argument that when Katy Perry does that, she's using her huge platform to elevate the issue, to raise awareness in a way that you know, Japanese people or Native Americans would never be able to do because they don't have the platform. So I'm already giving back to that culture because I'm creating this dialogue on national television, on the internet that would otherwise not be happening. Well, Amanda, how about actually elevating an actual Japanese person as opposed to taking from their culture to profit yourself and doing so in a really caricatured, acontextualized way? You know, it's fine. It, it is true in many cases that cultural appropriation comes from a place of honor, love and respect as opposed to hatred and fear and, and pure racism. But the harm is the same. You lose face, you lose, there's a psychological harm, there's a dilution of your culture, and there's straight up lost profits, right? If Katy Perry's out there in that particular costume, then where's the space for her counterpart who actually is from that culture? Okay, I'm glad you used the word costume. Good use of, of a word, because does that mean that at Halloween, and at costume parties, we no longer can dress, you know, in caricatures without being accused of cultural appropriation. Frederick, could you wear a, a, a Native American uh, headband to a costume party in New York uh, and not, you know, is that cultural appropriation? If, if you say, hey, I, I want to wear this because it's colorful and it's beautiful. 
it's absolutely cultural appropriation and we need to move past it, right? You know, one of the so defining no characteristics- wait, 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 so you said we can't wear costumes? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because um, I remember there was a young boy who was dressed as uh, Barack Obama, and what he did was he wore he wore a, a suit and had a hope poster, right? Because the rea the reality is my my skin, my my culture, my being is not a costume. This is my, my daily lived experience, and we need to move past thinking that we're entitled to everything that comes along with another person. Right. So so again, um, there are plenty of costumes. You can dress as a pumpkin all you want. I don't think pumpkins will have an issue. Um, but the but the reality is that when it comes to other people's lives, that's not a costume. So if I just like it, Dr. Dabinga, I'm fascinated with Native American culture. I've studied it. I, I've been you know, curious about it all my life. I've gone to some reservations. I've met some Native American people. I love the culture. So I, I want to dress up to represent the culture. I just happen to be a black woman. I'm not a Native American. I can't do that without being slammed. That's correct. It's like Fred said, culture is not a costume. If you love the Native American community, help them get get, get better schools, help deal with some of the challenges of, uh, of alcohol. I don't have the ability to do that, Dr. DeBing. I just want to put on a costume and go to a party. If you got Instagram, if you got YouTube, if you got Twitter, you can speak up. You can say, okay, hey. Let me ask you this. So yeah. I, I wear my costume. I do a photo shoot. I post it on Instagram yeah. and I give a little history lesson about Native Americans and how their land was stolen from them and the oppression that they suffered at the hand of, of you know, white settlers. Oh, Have no. I done enough? Meanwhile, nope. you're drunk at a party with your arm around your friend who's dressed as a slutty kitten and your and your other friend who's dressed Thank as a slutty kitten. And you have put that co that culture in that context. Halloween. But I have my yeah. history lesson there, Susan. I I'm just trying to find out for the app. You guys are saying that people need to donate money. They need to, you know, uh, advocate for new laws. That that's a whole lot of stuff for the everyday person that's just saying, look, I, I love the culture. I just want to dress in it. And yeah, when I you know, post my Instagram, I, I'm going to say something respectful about the culture. I don't know if we ever solve this. If the, if the answer is I've got to be engaged in this, you know, active act advocacy, that is not the lifestyle of everyone. You have to go out and buy the feathers and the fringe, then you're engaged enough to, to stop and think, you know, uh, put your money where your mouth is on this. Um, okay, so where, where does the line get drawn? Let's talk about cultural appreciation, Frederick. Give me an example of how I can show cultural appreciation and not get slammed for my Halloween costume. Well, I think cultural appreciation, a good example would be the show The Boondocks. You know, um, for those who are not familiar, um, Aaron Magruder um, created a comic book um, years ago and it became um, a, a television show and, and the show is drawn in an anime style. Right. And instead of taking anime culture, which is Japanese inherently, what they did was they worked with Japanese animators. They consulted Japanese people, make sure people were paid. And then along the while, they give praise to Japanese culture as well. And, and, they, and what they try to do is um, bring in people so that to Dr. DeBinga's point, there is a mutual benefit, a mutual understanding. And there's also now a new systemic understanding within the black community and within the Japanese community about other communities. And that, in my opinion, is how you show appreciation in, in an example. I'm just trying to understand the lines, though, Dr. DeBinga. I'm sure you, you saw the controversy. Beyonce, you know, mm -hmm. beloved, you know, globally does this project around Africa 
uses African, uh, you know, uh, uh, entertainers and performers in the video, African garb, African culture, and she's still slammed by people saying she was appropriating African culture uh, and not being respectful of it. So, and, you know, she, you know, pushed back on that and said, look, I, you know, I've hired X number of African, you know, entertainers. And she just kind of, you know, gave the receipts of what she did, but, but people still weren't happy with that. Now, this is a great, and I don't know if this is a question for a whole nother hour, but I don't believe that African-Americans can appropriate African culture. Okay. I believe that we're all the same people for, for, for one. And what Beyonce does and the dances that, that we're all doing is are, are derivative from the African continent. Now, having said that, I do believe what Beyonce and her mom who also spoke out on this a lot as well, they use their platform to make a platform for other African artists, you know, other African artists who are already known in other places like Yemi Holiday and, and, and other artists. They help build that profile. They, and those guys are still eating off of that as well when you look at the album as well. So I look at that as a mutually beneficial relationship. And a lot of people got paid off of that. Now, we can have a deeper conversation about Disney not really being available in African markets. And so that's another issue for another day. But I do not believe that what she did with that, with that film represents cultural appropriation. I believe it's appreciation. Do you agree with that, Frederick, that African-Americans cannot appropriate African culture? I well, before you respond, agree. Fred, before you respond, Fred, I want to say that there's a difference between appreciating and mocking. You know what I mean? And, you know, I look at things like a coming to America, for example. I think that's a little bit different, appreciation versus... Okay, let's talk about coming to America, too, Dr. No, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add that in there, Fred. Sorry to interrupt. Wait a minute. Are, are you saying that you think the, the coming to America, the blockbuster movie, $285 million, the first movie with Eddie Murphy, and the second movie now just out on, you know, Amazon, that, 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 that those two movies mock African culture? I believe that there was some mocking that was going on. I think that was part of the whole comedic aspect of the film. It also mocked a lot of African-American culture ideas as well. It mocked a lot of things relating to Black culture nationally as well as internationally. I think both films did that. Frederick, what do you think about coming to America? I completely agree. I think that if you put it up um, in juxtaposition with something like Black Panther, where there was a celebration of global blackness, right? Um, versus um, a mocking that at times felt rooted in stereotypes created by white supremacy for coming to America, um, one and two, to be quite frank. Um, and there, there's key differences. Going back to Beyonce for a moment, as uh, Dr. Dabinga put it, there was not only a, a mutual benefit, but there was also systemic growth um, that was caused and created by Beyonce lending platform, creating platform. And you don't see that in the coming to America. You see um, tropes. You well, see wait a minute, Frederick, wait a minute. Okay, so what, particularly Z generation who didn't see coming to America one, but saw coming to America two, they defend the movie and said, Eddie Murphy put a whole lot of black actors who otherwise wouldn't be acting, put them to work. So whether the movie was as funny or, you know, you know, the storyline was as strong as coming to America one. Many of us, you know, who love one didn't think that about two. But they say, wait, he did, you know, create opportunities for black actors. So what's the difference? Beyonce did the same thing for African actors. And I think what she did was phenomenal. I didn't understand the, the, the you know, the, the attack on her because I think the line, you know, gets blurred. But you, you think coming to America too 
you know, what about comedy? Are people, are we not allowed to, to use comedy? I think that there are aspects of it, as Dr. Dabinga said, I don't think the entire thing is necessarily a mockery, but there are aspects of it that lean into the tropes created oftentimes by other white supremacist narr narratives about um, African um, culture and African nations. Um, and, and it was done now for comedy, um, but even still, it doesn't, it doesn't negate what was done. And if, if you hire black actors, right, we had, we had minstrel shows um, at points, right? It doesn't mean that because you have a black person, um, you know, producing something that it inherently makes it correct. Susan, jump in. Have you seen I, the movie? I have. And what I'm hearing is a family feud. And I think that that is so important <laughs> to be able to have because that's how our cultural norms evolve, right? When we say, look, you know, it, you can't do this with, and it, what I usually say is without permission. I don't mean you knock on the door of your nearest Black friend and say, can I do this? Because I know you speak on behalf of your entire race. You say, listen to what people are saying generally and keep having that conversation. Um, so what Fred, what Dr. Debeka have done in, in elevating this discourse and co convincing people to talk about it is airing this out. And so it may not be cultural appropriation, but that doesn't make it right. Um, that doesn't you know, we've got to leave it there. That's an excellent point. I don't know, Fred and Dr. Debeka, I'm not with y'all on this coming to America stuff. I, I'm like, I, you know, I didn't love the movie. I'm going to be honest about that. I, I, you know, a friend of mine told me, don't compare it to one because you're not gonna love it as much as you did one. But I, I do have to respect what Eddie Murphy did. And you're right, all things, just because they're black, don't make them right. And, and I clearly get that. Uh, but I also think that we can uh, you know, appreciate comedic expression as well. And there are some lines that can be drawn, but in the family, black folks can poke fun at each other. And, and I think that's what a lot of what was happening in the movie was doing. Uh, it's just like we had the conversation about the N-word and who gets to use it. Uh, and, you know, there's some folks who believe that, you know, in the family, in the culture, you know, folks have permission to use it. But obviously a big conversation. Thank you guys uh, for your opinions. Always good to see you, Frederick. You know, keep killing it with that book, uh, How to Be a Black Friend. We know you have a couple of other books that are coming out, so we'll have to have you back. And Dr. Dabinga, always great to get your insight. And Susan. What a pleasure to meet you. Uh, your book, Who Owns Culture? All of this important information. Keep having those conversations. And thank you, Susan, for noting, no, you cannot ask your one black friend and get permission and think that you have permission from the race. Because we speak you have to read one. Fred's book instead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> read Fred's book instead. And remember, you meet one black person. Guess what? You've met one black person. So, <laughs> all right, guys. Have a good one. And take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.